In the classic book and play, Les Miserables, the main character, Valjean, has been released from prison on parole. And he's finding that it's near impossible to make it in the everyday world as a common criminal. And his hard heart is further hardened. But he's taken in by a kindly neighborhood bishop who Valjean sees as easy prey. And because times have been hard, Valjean steals some silver from the bishop. And as you might guess, he's captured by the police, and the police bring him back to the bishop for questioning. But the bishop says, no, 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 no. Valjean was supposed to take that silver, and he's supposed to take some of my other possessions as well because I gave them to him. The bishop's actions toward Valjean demonstrate the power of mercy as well as the unexpected way God's kingdom works. The bishop trusted that his treasure was in heaven. So he took a chance to invest his worldly wealth to alter Valjean's bitter life course. It wasn't the 20 years that he spent in prison, but rather the bishop's mercy that transformed Valjean from a bitter criminal into a powerful agent of mercy for the poor, the orphaned, and the abandoned. Last fall, we started a, an extended series on the Beatitudes, and today we're going to address Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, the etymology of the word mercy goes back to the Hebrew, the word chill, which means to be in pain as a woman in travail, and the word galal, to cry or lament grievously, because a merciful person enters into the miseries of his neighbor, feels for and mourns with that person. The Latin for mercy is misericordia, uh, made of two words, miserans, meaning pitying, and cor, meaning the heart. So it's a pain of the heart. Mercy supposes two things, as you might guess. A person, perhaps an animal, that is distressed, and a disposition of the heart which is affected by the sight of that person or animal. One Greek word, again the New Testament written in Greek, that could have been used for mercy in the Beatitudes is oikthermos, okay? And that means comfort in difficult times, compassion in the heart. And it's used in Scripture uh, when Paul sought to unify the Philippian church. Uh, he told them in Philippians 2, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, or oikthermos, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. And when Paul stressed that God is capable to comfort absolutely 
in tribulation because he understands and feels our needs. He told them in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. But that's not the word that the Holy Spirit used in the beatitude that we're studying today. Instead, the word is ele, excuse me, eleeo, eleeo. And that word includes an inward tenderness and compassion with a special emphasis, emphasis on outward expression and manifestation of that tenderness. In other words, LAAO mercy reveals itself not just through words of sympathy, but by specific action pouring out of compassion. It's kind of like the motto of our Topeka Rescue Mission, faith with its sleeves rolled up, because James tells us that faith without works is dead. This virtue is a lively emotion of the heart which is excited by the discovery of another man's misery which manifests itself outwardly by action. Now, why should we show mercy? Well, I would suggest to you because we have received mercy. In Matthew 18, we have Peter coming to Christ and asking him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And I kind of think Peter was, thought he was generous. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And then Jesus recounts that the king commanded a certain slave who owed him a huge debt to be sold with his children and his wife to pay off the debt. But the slave comes to him and begs for patience and time to repay the debt. The king has mercy, in fact, so much mercy on this slave that he forgives the whole debt. But then the slave goes out and he finds a fellow slave who owed the first slave a small debt. And he took him by the throat and he said, pay me what you owe. And the fellow slave pleads for mercy and promises to repay. But the first slave threw him into prison because of that debt. But then the king found out about this. And as it picks up in... uh, Matthew 18, verse 32, summoning him, the king said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the king moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers in the New American Standard until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus said, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
I kind of think Jesus was warning us about something there. James says the very same thing uh, when in uh, James 2, verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, when one is saved, one escapes the eternal punishment for sin that we call hell. But did you know that Christians do not escape judgment? In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, James 2.12 is more correctly translated, so speak and do so that you will be judged by a law of freedom and liberality. See, Christ will judge us and our works, but some will receive more liberality and generosity than others, as James goes on to explain in the next verse. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy will be shown to the believer at this judgment in direct proportion to the mercy shown during that believer's life on earth. Now, to be clear here, we are saved only by the work of Christ on the cross. Yet our enjoyment of heaven and its rewards will be reflected in how we live for Christ, especially, especially how we show mercy to others while we are on earth. Verse 13 ends with, Mercy triumphs over judgment. The believer who has shown mercy may stand unafraid at the judgment because that mercy, the mercy he has shown, will be taken into account in that judgment. Now, we have discussed mercy before back on January the 25th of 2009 uh, and you, if you want to go back and, and uh, cover that again, you can listen to it on the website. But I'm going to repeat a little bit of that, not only because half of you here now were not here then, but it is vital that we understand the nature of mercy. True mercy only has meaning in a context of true justice. If mercy is all there is, for what are we grateful? It's kind of like the PUD class. Anybody ever here taking a class that everybody knew you'd get an A with very little effort? Okay? All right. I would guess that you didn't try very hard in that class. Okay? And if you don't remember that class, it's probably because it wasn't really terribly meaningful to you. I tend to remember the, the teachers who were hard on me rather than the easy ones. Now, even or if I, as an offender or a sinner, have no respect for or even concept of justice, I can't acknowledge the offense and agree that a punishment, whether reproof or correction or whatever, is just and deserved. And if I have no recognition of my guilt before a perfectly just God, I have no need of mercy. Valjean knew what he deserved. 
That's why the bishop's mercy turned his life around. Any sinner can receive mercy on the basis of his confession, repentance, restitution. Only because he recognizes that he deserves the full punishment for his sin. Mercy is inextricably tied to justice. These two virtues are not so much as opposites like black and white or truth and falsehood as they are like determination and patience or truth and love. Mercy is a balance to justice and justice to mercy. Now, to know how to balance requires discernment. For criminals, the usual argument for justice is that the offender must learn a lesson so that he or she does not punish or, excuse me, offend another. And that's a completely valid argument. The bishop, indeed, took a chance on Valjean based upon his discernment. When applied to parenting styles, I believe that neither the one-beat justice nor the always permissively merciful parent is terribly effective. Uh, God, or excuse me, good parenting requires that we think about our responses based upon the particular tendencies of each child. I kind of think it's a good practice to be just in the short run, but merciful in the long. In other words, set your goal, require first-time obedience, but never, never, never stop loving your child when they inevitably disobey, whether that one time for maybe a couple of you out there or often like it was for me. When one is out of balance in either direction, the consequences are catastrophic. Justice without mercy, just like love or, or, or uh, truth without love, is terribly harsh. Mercy without justice is not only meaningless, it is one of the greatest deceptions of our day. There is a controversial yet, I understand, popular book out there called Love Wins by a guy named Rob Bell, pastor of a mega church. And as I understand Bell's salvation scheme, God's love wins over all people without exception, either during life or after death. Everybody will make it to heaven, according to this pastor. And hell is simply a vacant storage facility, God's deceptive bluff, clearly a threat in the Bible, but an empty one nonetheless. The consequences of this teaching? Well, if I'm told that one way or another the details really aren't important, I will somehow be won over after death, and I'll go to heaven regardless of any decisions or actions during my life, I don't really have to believe in Jesus while I'm alive. If I don't have to believe that Jesus died for my sins to satisfy God's justice in order to, for me to go to heaven, then sacrifice, his sacrifice and his excruciating pain 
on the cross may make for a good movie, but it was really just a meaningless show. Who cares what Christ did because in the end, it's all good. Now, this isn't even a get-out-of-hell card. It's not about being born again. It is literally salvation simply by birth or, if not then, by death. In terms of practical effect, if this is a universal condition, then what difference does anything we decide or trust in during our lives make? In fact, why should Christians bother to take the gospel to anyone who hasn't heard? If love wins, over what does it win? Do people with such notions really mean to say that God's love wins out over, actually negates, and therefore makes irrelevant God's perfect justice? Now, some of you may have, I want to be fair, I haven't read Bell's book, and I may be missing something, but from what I've seen so far, I'm sure that he's highly intelligent, obviously a very creative guy, has a lot of people listening to you, but it leads me to believe that this man is a dangerous heretic. And perhaps we'll address that issue later in the future. What's more important is what the Bible says about mercy. One, it's listed as one of the spiritual gifts. Romans 12 says that he who shows mercy should do it with cheerfulness. Secondly, God's mercy is given as an example for all Christians. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul tells us, starting in verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then Paul goes on to discuss how the law is for the lawless. He then continues in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost sinner Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood the purpose of the law and the importance of justice. He also recognized the balance of mercy because he recognized himself as a recipient. Now, we are a church that stands for something. And in taking a stand, we must state the truth in love about any subject, whether it be the sanctity of marriage or abortion or any immoral act. We are right for calling for justice for the knowing perpetrators of these grave offenses against God. But we have to recognize that there is room at the cross for all sinners who humbly repent 
and seek forgiveness. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. I'm going to ask you today what I asked two years ago. Could you forgive? Could you have mercy upon a repentant homosexual advocate, an adulterer, an abortionist? God can. Speaking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he looked at them. Such were some of you, Corinthian believers. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Similarly, in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one of us should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, how does God call us to show mercy? Uh, One way is as unto Jesus, as unto him. Speaking of the judgment, Jesus referred to sheep as those who showed mercy and goats as those who did not. And he was not claiming that the sheep earned their salvation through their acts because both groups were surprised by his statements. But of the sheep, he said in Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. When we show mercy to someone in need, in some way, we're doing that to Christ. 
Another way that we are to show mercy is without expectation of earthly reward. Luke 14 describes an incident in which Jesus was invited to a banquet at the home of a Pharisee. And while there, Jesus said to him, to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't just invite your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your, your rich, rich acquaintances. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return for that, and that will be your repayment. It's not bad to have friends and, and family over, but your repayment is when they reciprocate. But Jesus continued, when you hold a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they don't have the means to repay you, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The hardest one is that we're to show mercy even to our enemies. If God brings people with basic needs to us, we should do what we can to meet those needs. Now, Paul quotes Old Testament teaching in Romans 12 when he says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this concept of helping your neighbor or your, your enemy is fascinating. In the study of rhetoric, the art of persuasion, this is an even more so argument. If we are to provide basic needs for our enemies, what does that say about the people with whom we have no conflict, simply the people on the street who have needs? This is the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you understand the story, the Samaritan was not one that would be expected to help a Jew who was in trouble. Because the merciful have a completely different view of the world. They have compassion for ungodly people who will be lost if they're not rescued. The merciful are gentle to the weak, generous to the poor, and forgiving of the offender. They lend a hand to the needy. They sympathize with the afflicted, and they pick up the fallen. Now, have you seen people like this? If you have, I suspect that most of them are females. Women tend to have a better grasp upon this virtue than men. And I would guess that many, if not most of those females, are mothers. I was not too surprised to learn that our Mother's Day was actually birthed by women who were trying to bring healing and reconciliation for those who were divided by our civil war 150 years ago. Perhaps your mother showed you mercy. If not, please, please show her mercy and forgive her even if she's gone. And you set the example for those watching you. I have been blessed to be surrounded by women of mercy. One such mother is Esther. Now, 
you might be in a quandary. No, our, I, was, I, I got the conviction uh, many years ago that any woman who's ever been pregnant is a mother. And our expectant Esther is, if I may say, an incurable mercy. Uh, she suffered with a suffering in Haiti. Uh, she can't even pass up a stray dog. Isn't that right, Kathy? There you are. Yes. What I can't figure out is how that Esther has left the household, but the dog is still there. Another such example is my wife, Christy, who feels compassion at the, at, for others at the mention of a need. Christy's presently ministering to a mom with cancer. It pains her heart greatly to watch her own children suffer. When she said recently that she might want to go to Haiti, our other children who had been there came to me and said, Dad, Dad, you cannot let her go alone. She would never make it emotionally by herself. Finally, there is my mother who is here today, Marcella Hilmer. And I have to be completely honest here because my sisters are here as well and honoring our mom, and they know what a difficult child I was. Uh, I used to hide behind the couch when their boyfriends came over. Uh, and I suspect that I got away with a bit more than they did, which is kind of typical of lastborns, I think. But not always. Mom and Dad had to pick me up a number of times from police custody. And despite all those hardships, despite those difficulties, despite my stubbornness, despite my rebellion, my mom never gave up on me. She always loved me. Yes, she did leave a taste of soap in my mouth one time, which she does not remember. But she never, never stopped loving me. And that's what she did with all of us. Speaking to my children today who are here, you really have no idea how much you owe your Grammy. Now, you may think that I was or have been a hard parent, and I resemble that remark, but if not for her example of constant mercy, who knows how unforgiving and how harsh I may have been. My sisters learned by her example how not only to love me, which was difficult, but also their own children in times of disagreement. And hopefully I have learned something from my mother about how to be merciful when children disappoint. I want to ask a question. We're winding down here. I know it's getting hot. Is there anything God cannot do? I mean, beyond that logic trick, can God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? Okay? Now, we often say, no, God is all-powerful. He can do anything. But I would suggest to you that there is something that God cannot do. 
The greatest example of mercy that we have is that Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the universe, with the power to give each one of us exactly what we deserve in eternal punishment, humbled himself, came to earth to live and breathe as a man in a perfect life. Then, while he was in the garden, and as he trudged up the road to Golgotha, he realized even though he was fully God, he was still fully man, and he was going to feel fully the pain of the crucifixion. I believe that the pain that Jesus experienced was multiplied by an infinite factor because the price he was paying was, this, was for all sin at all time for the whole world. Why him? Why put to death? Why torture a completely innocent man, the only one ever to live? Because God cannot deny his own nature of perfect justice. Justice demands payment for our sins. However, in the very act of dying not for his but for my sins, Jesus personified mercy when he cried out in his agony on the cross, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what to do. And in effect, he was saying, Father, forgive John, forgive Stan, forgive Christy, forgive Kent. Each of us is like Valjean, are we not? At first blush, mercy seems like an emotion that some have and some really don't. Uh, Certainly, some are more merciful than others. But given what the Word says about mercy, can any of us afford not to be merciful? Can any Christian say, well, uh, I'm going to leave that mercy thing to others. It's not my gift. Not my thing. Now, I know. There are many merciful folks in this gym, as evidenced by the compassion shown in many ministries and missions. I want to think here for a second. I, think, I suspect a lot of you had read a book or are reading a book called Radical by David Platt. And you know that in that book he argues forcefully and sometimes uncomfortably that the American dream of affluence has blinded the church to the needs of the rest of the world so that we fail to show true mercy. We don't want to give up our stuff. And in our material dependence, we falter in the Great Commission. Perhaps, perhaps, each of us should consider whether God would have us give up something of this world, just like the bishop who showed radical mercy to Valjean did. And then Valjean, in turn, showed mercy.
to others. In the Shakespearean play, The Merchant of Venice, Portia asks Shylock to please show mercy. And his response, on what compulsion must I? Who's going to make me? And Portia's response, and I put it on your, your handout, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show like God's when mercy seasons justice. Heavenly Father, we know that but for your love and your mercy, we would have and we would be nothing. And that because of our fallen state, we don't deserve to be with you. We deserve eternal punishment. But because you came to save sinners, even me, we that know you have the privilege and the future of eternity with you. And anyone who desires to know you, who simply gives up stubborn unbelief, may have that same future in eternity. Father, help us not to just hear these words. Help us instead to carry them out in our lives day in and day out. To those in Haiti and other parts of the world, to those next door, literally. Father, help us to demonstrate mercy to all as you have much more abundantly shown us that same mercy. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.